new in town. And they said, oh, yeah, I just moved here uh, with my family. And the stranger uh, said, so the clerk said, well, let me be the first then to welcome you. And I want to extend my hand. And thanks, the stranger said and shook it. And the stranger asked the clerk, what are the people like in this town? And the clerk said, well, what were the people like in the town that you just left? Oh, the stranger said, they were friendly, they were upbeat, they were generous. Uh, We really hated to leave. It was very challenging for us. And the clerk said, I know what you mean. I think that's pretty much what you'll find here too. A few days later, another stranger walked in to the store Like the first, picked up a few staples, headed to the cash register, and the same clerk said, oh, are you new to town? Yes, the stranger mumbled. "Uh, Let me be the first to welcome you. Stranger shook a hand, reluctantly frowned, quickly looked down, said, so, what are the people like in this town? And the clerk said again, well, what were the people like in the last town that you lived in? Oh, not great. The guest stammered. They were cold, they were aloof, and they were selfish. We were glad to get out of there. And he looked up at the clerk. And the clerk simply said, well, I'm afraid that's probably what you'll find here too then. And Hayek concludes his story by saying this, if it's true that we get what we expect, it's worth paying careful attention to our expectations. You get what you expect with sincere apologies to the Rolling Stones and Rolling Stones fans. We're in a teaching series this fall in the book of First Thessalonians. And last week, uh, two weeks, we talked about the fact that Paul and Sim- Timothy and Silas had an incredibly short window of time with the church in Thessalonica to shape and to share their faith. 21 days they were in town before persecution forced them to leave. And so when Paul writes back to this group of believers in Thessalonica, it's helpful for us to question what are the expectations that he has? What does he expect to find? What does he want to see when Timothy visits them again? Because the answer to that question will help us understand a little bit about our own lives and understand what expectations we should possess when it comes to our own spiritual journey. So we're going to look together at 1 Thessalonians. We're going to uh, start in verse 17 of chapter 2 and then read through till the end of chapter 3. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, Paul says this, Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, even though our hearts never really left you, we tried very hard to come back because of the intense longing that we have to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy? What will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are our pride and our joy. And so finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to come and to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you. We sent him to encourage you in the faith and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles that you were going through. But you know that we were destined for such troubles. Even when we were with you, 
We warned you the troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. And that's why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong, because I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work with you had been useless. But now Timothy has just returned, and he's bringing us the good news about your faith and about the love that you have. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we've been greatly encouraged in the midst of our own troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. So how we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you. We're asking God to let us see you again to fill in the gaps in your faith. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love over you overflows for you. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, and blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father, when the Lord Jesus comes again with all of his holy people. Amen. So what does Paul expect to find in the lives of the believers in the city of Thessalonica? When he sends Timothy for a visit, what does he expect Timothy to say when he comes back to him? I think it's instructive for us that first and foremost, Paul actually expects to find them struggling. Timothy brings Paul a very realistic report. In chapter 3, verse 6, it's a good news report about their growth and faith and love, but it also is a report that shares honestly some of the struggles that they're facing. And this isn't shocking to Paul, because Paul, all through his writings and his own life and his experience, communicates that the Christian life will not be free from trouble or pain or struggle. We understand reading other parts of Paul's correspondence with them that some people in the community of Thessalonica were saying, you know what, Paul doesn't care about you. He isn't coming back. You should just give up on this whole Jesus thing. Go back to whatever it is that you were doing before that, the way of life that you had. That would be so much easier. Then you wouldn't face persecution or struggles. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, well, it's not that we don't want to come and visit you. That's not it at all. He says, we were, we were ripped away from you, but our hearts continue to be with you in the middle of of this struggle. And this is the primary image that Paul uses in a lot of his letters. And you hear it particularly in the tone that he takes here. It's an image of parenting or spiritual parenting. And he uses here the language that of a child who is separated at birth or orphaned. And children who have that experience in their lives have a unique set of challenges. In our own family, my half-sister was given up for adoption by my mom at birth. And that experience marked both of their lives in a profound way. There's a lot of families here at Jericho who have chosen to walk the challenging road of welcoming those who have had very different backgrounds 
and very challenging backgrounds into their homes and adopting children from local or global places. And I commend them for that because that's not an easy road. And in many ways, Paul is trying to communicate to them the language of parenthood to describe this relationship that they have and his heart for them as one who has led them in that community. Paul will often use language about caring for them like a mother or leading like a father. And in every spiritual community, there's those who are spiritual mothers and fathers. And here at Jericho, those people care for you in the same way. I think about people like Ralph. I think about people like David and Tyler, people like Curtis and people like Ron. Hearts of compassion for people around them. Ready and willing to meet needs. I think about them sitting in meetings or emailing each other and saying, how's this person doing in our community? Do I need to reach out to them and care for them? Let's pray for them in this way. Let's make sure that they're well. I think about the staff team and how we gather regularly to pray for names of people in the life of this community that we know are going through hard times. And I think a way that, that the community rallies around people in seasons of challenge. Part of this is just life together in the midst of struggle. And this is Paul's tone. This is his expectation of what happens together in a faith community. But here's the thing about parenting that Paul's quite clear about. And that hopefully if you're a parent, you're clear about as well. As a dad, I don't expect my kids to get stuff right all of the time. I expect that my kids are going to struggle with some things. I expect that some things in their life will be harder than other things for them. I expect that some growth and pain and struggle will be a part of their experience, and I don't want to prevent them from experiencing some of those things. Because some growth only happens in those times and seasons of pain and struggle. As a parent, when you walk with your kids through little frustrations and big, whether you're fighting over homework being done or not done, relationship challenges, heartbreaks, decisions that are made that have significant and sometimes life-altering or life-shattering decisions that your kids make, parenting is hard work. But it's actually harder work if you expect that your kids will have nothing but smooth sailing and that they will uh, never disappoint you in any way. Because the problem is you will be profoundly disappointed and hurt when your kids don't meet your expectations in some way. That's part of parenting. And that's part of what Paul is trying to communicate in his expectations with the Thessalonians. Think about people that you have around you that you mentor spiritually or otherwise. What are your expectations? Are your expectations realistic or unrealistic? Part of the other reason for the struggle, however, is that not only is there 
spiritual parenting influences at work in our lives. There's other influences as well. Paul reminds us that part of our struggle is in a faith community and in our own lives as people of faith that we face spiritual opposition. Paul mentions this twice, actually, in a very short period of time. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I wanted to come, but actually Satan prevented us from coming. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, you know, there's a possibility that in your own life, in your faith journey, you could be tempted to the place where you would forsake elements of your faith and walk away from it. See, the New Testament reminds us over and over and over again that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers in the heavenly realms. We're reminded that Satan roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour and that we're to be vigilant and to be alert. And this is a tricky balance for us to strike as people of faith because on the one hand, we can give Satan way too much credit and become completely paralyzed with fear about his activities and demonic work. We don't want to go on that end, but we also don't want to fall into the opposite fallacy that doesn't give Satan any credit at all and just thinks about things strictly in terms of naturalistic cause or effects. And Paul says, I wanted to come and see you, but Satan prevented me in some way. We don't know all of the details what that looked like. And some of the reasons for struggles in your life or in the church or in your family may have spiritual roots and causes. And so it's challenging to figure out and isolate. Don't give Satan too much credit, but don't give him too little credit either. This is maybe one of the reasons why historically the church has tried to wrestle with these things and why today is actually All Saints Day, to try and give some kind of a counterbalance to the emphasis that our culture in particular places around October 31st. And so we want to be vigilant we want to be wary and be aware that some of the struggles that we will face in our lives are because spiritual opposition is in play. And we can struggle to try and figure out what that means and looks like. But Paul expects that in these struggles, in these moments, it'll, something else will happen in our lives. And he says to them, you need to stay firm, but it's also expected that you're not going to be perfect. Look at his language in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, uh, we thank God for you because of the great joys we enter God's presence. Night and day we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again so that we can fill in the gaps in your faith. The reason that we want to come is because you do not have it all together, he says. There's gaps. Sometimes the struggles in our lives can expose those gap areas in our own faith. Think about it this way. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina ravaged uh, the southern coast of Louisiana and New Orleans in particular. And you might recall seeing the pictures of extensive and catastrophic flooding that happened. And I remember seeing these and thinking, why did this happen? What in the world was going on that allowed that level of flooding and breaching of the dams. Well, part of the reason that the flooding was so catastrophic 
was that when they built the levees or the dams around the, around the city, the engineers misjudged the strength of the peat, the earth that they used as the foundation that they dragged out of the bogs around New Orleans in the 20th century. And the strength of this peat was very low, and it actually was already saturated with water. And according to a geotechnical engineer from the University of California, the weak soil made the flood wall vulnerable to the stress of a large flood. And the challenge was, everybody knew this for years. They knew that the levees were not high enough and that the peat underneath it was not going to hold if a significant storm came. And so as the water pressure mounted and moved through those weak parts of the soil underneath the base of the wall, the rising pressure and the moving water overcame the strength and suddenly the levee shifted and took the whole surrounding material and the wall with it. There were gaps. There were weak areas and numerous people had identified that over the course of the years but no action had been taken. And so aided by incomplete protection and the sections that held erodible materials in it, Hurricane Katrina simply pushed against that and pushed enough pressure and water against the weak areas so that the gaps burst and it allowed things to seep in. And so the question that Paul is driving at here is saying, where are the weak areas in your life? Where are those places where you're weak and vulnerable? Because the enemy of your soul knows those places and he's looking to find a gap. What are the gaps in your life? Maybe it's greed or materialism. Maybe it's an element of sexual sin. Maybe it's angerness, anger or bitterness or lying or gluttony. You see, standing firm involves, first of all, knowing where you're weak and taking steps then to buttress or to strengthen those areas in your life in the strength that God's provided. Because where's the enemy going to attack you? He's not going to attack you where you're strong. He's going to attack you where there's a gap, where there's a weakness in your life. And so if you know where those weaknesses are, you need to get help. And you need to get people around you that can share strength in those areas so that you can do everything that you can to buttress your life against the attacks. Paul's first expectation is clear. He expects the Thessalonians and you and I that there will be struggles and that these struggles will expose some of these weak areas in our lives. But he's also deeply convinced of something else. He's deeply convinced that the dam will not burst. He actually, when he writes to them, expects them to be standing firm. In the midst of their struggles, he expects not that they'll be trampled down or that they'll be overrun. He says to them, I expect that you will actually be in a position of strength. And to me, this is incredible because he's only with them for three weeks of time. And then he doesn't see them for approximately five years. And he writes back to them and says, you know what? I feel deeply convinced that the Spirit of God has been at work in your life to the place that you'll be able to stand firm. How is that possible, even in the midst of trials and persecutions? Well, Paul actually gives them some of the pieces of the puzzle that he said that it takes to stand firm in the midst of trying times. He makes a few comments that I hope, 
I think, help us understand what this looks like. He talks to them about being established in their faith, being grounded in their faith. They're grounded because they were eager to receive input in their lives, to give them a foundation to stand on. Solid teaching, input from, the li- from those around them who are more mature in their faith. You see, when you're grounded in your faith, when you're rooted, when there's a foundation that you've built into your life of truth, then that will assist you in standing firm in times of challenge. This is one reason why here at Jericho, in 2015, we focused on Bible intake. Project 345 bookmarks or life journaling groups for you to engage with Scripture. Because we believe that getting the scripture into your life and you engaging with God's word will provide you a deep foundation for you to build on. And if Sunday a.m. is your only spiritual input for you or your kids through the course of the week, you're in big trouble when the storms of life come. Because your root system's not going to have the strength that it needs to stand firm. Sunday can't bear the full weight of grounding you. Being established in your faith is going to take other activities on your part and taking initiative to grow and being grounded. And so the question that I would have for you is what spiritual practices do you have in your life that will help you to be grounded so that when trouble comes, that you'll have a bedrock that you've been building into your life? I talk to people here at Jericho. Some of them say things to me like, I listen to podcasts on my commute that help Give me solid teaching in areas of my life that I know that I need that. Maybe you're a new mom and you can snatch just a few minutes with God during the morning nap. Making a commitment to developing depth in your life will stand you in good stead in times of trouble. So what spiritual practices are you building into your life that will help ground you? Because as your faith is strengthened, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, that the goal of that is that you would be unmoved by affliction. And this is an incredibly lofty goal that he sets out for them. That the hard experiences of life, like standing at the deathbed of a friend, or walking through divorce, or extended and painful illness, or not getting into the college program that you've tried and tried and tried at, or wandering through a spiritual wasteland where you feel like God is distant and silent, or longing for a prodigal child to come home for years and years. The goal, Paul says, of you being grounded is so that you would not be shaken in these seasons. The things would not unsettle or dissuade or shake you to the point of giving up because they don't touch the core of who you are in Christ. Peter's actually going to preach about this and hold up a perspective for us a little bit about this next weekend as he walks us through chapter 4. Paul says, we need to be established in your faith. I expect that you'll be established in your faith. And he also says, you stand firm because you do not stand alone. You might be individuals, but you make a choice not to stand individually. If you want to stand firm, we do so together. And so Paul says, I actually expect that what this looks like is you encouraging and strengthening each other. There's a role that this community has to play in helping you stand firm in your life because your relationship with God is not strictly a vertical one. There's a horizontal dynamic to that as well. It involves other people. 
And this is what Paul is driving at in places like chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, May the Lord make your love for one another grow and overflow. This is hard work. Because in a community, we're not all alike. And so differences sometimes have a way of polarizing or driving us apart, as opposed to encouraging and driving us together. One commentator says this, The Christian community is like a school in which we learn to love. Like great musicians who practice tedious drills for long hours, Christians practice their scales at home in the community in order to sing in public. In the community, love is commanded and modeled, and here it is where it must be lived out and practiced. That doesn't mean that love is limited to the bounds of the community, but it means that if the community does not live by the model and teaching of its founder, Jesus, how can it expect others to hear it or hear the call to join them in it? What relationships do you have in place around you? People that can build into your life and strengthen you for the journey. Some of you might need to take steps to develop new relationships or deeper relationships. And that's hard work. And that's part of the thing that we do here at Jericho is we hold out things like our table and say, we want to help you develop relationships with other people. It's part of the reason that life groups are such a powerful spiritual catalyst in people's growth is because you make that commitment to allowing other people to shape shape and sharpen your faith journey. Sometimes that support is encouragement. Sometimes that support is just showing up and being present. Yesterday, that support looked like Mike Price and Pam looking on Facebook and seeing that somebody was in need and saying, we're going to jump in and help. Mike drove Wendy up to the hospital, sat with her. Sometimes that support looks like meals that get made and delivered in times of need. Sometimes that support looks like getting down on the floor and playing with other people's kids and kids at the ridge. Sometimes that support looks like getting down on your knees and lifting up that brother or sister to the Lord in prayer. Look at how often Paul mentions that he's praying for them. He says this is a key part of living together in communities, being earnest in prayer for others. Chapter 3, 9 and 10, he says, Night and day, night and day, we pray earnestly for you with a focus on thanksgiving, speaking out words of thanks, what he sees, naming what he sees in the lives of of other people. And you might say, well, I'm not really good at prayer. I don't even know what I would ask for and talk to God about for other people. So certainly I don't want to join in that in any kind of corporate way. One of the cool things that I'm watching observe growing here in the life of Jericho as we make commitments to praying for each other is things like I watched Justin Fong show up at pre-gathering prayer Justin almost never prays for anything or anyone, but he's there making a commitment to lift up and be part of the community. The elders have made commitments and said, we're going to spend time together as a community in prayer. And so we gather for a half hour every Sunday morning from 9.45 till 10.15. People bring their kids, they play over in the media lounge, and we speak words of affirmation and prayer into each other's lives. I want to invite you to make earnest prayer a priority in this season. So maybe you say, well, I want to show up then at the prayer night for Howard and Kara 
on November 12th. Because friends, it's out of the fertile ground of continual prayer that thanksgiving originates. At Thanksgiving, you remember we did bookmarks and we asked you to write out one thing each day that you were thankful to God for. And so we don't have time this morning in the gathering to allow you to speak those out. But make sure you take an opportunity. Maybe you want to do that uh, online in some way. Maybe you want to do that with somebody else who you were doing it together with, somebody in your life group or in your challenge group. Talk about what are the things that you are thankful for in this season. Because part of our ability to give thanks, even in the most challenging times, is rooted in thanksgiving and in the perspective that Paul calls them to and calls us to. Because Paul expects that even in the midst of challenging circumstances, you could give thanks. And what that means is that as Christians, we're living life from a different perspective. As I was thinking about perspective, my mind uh, went to the world of photography. And I have a camera, but I leave it on the automatic setting all the time and it just works. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works. When I push the button, it focuses and it does wonderful things most of the time. So I thought, well, this idea of perspective, though, is actually quite rich to help us understand what it is that Paul is driving at. And so I'm going to ask Daryl if he would come up. And Daryl's just going to walk us through a little bit about both their personal journey as a family And then also, you're going to get a free photography lesson out of this this morning as well. Because as I've listened to Daryl talk, I've heard you guys shift in your perspective. And so walk us through a little bit about that. Um, What kind of shifts have been happening in your perspective as a family as you get ready to go back to do the work that God's called you to? In about nine weeks, you're going to be on a plane. Not to freak you out. Jody, about nine weeks, you're going to be on a plane to Mazatlan, Mexico for about three months living and serving amongst people there. So what kind of perspective shifts are going on in your mind and heart right now? Well, that's currently, that's currently not what's freaking me out. But um, <laughs> um, It's an interesting question because um, the, the biggest part of the question is it implies that there actually is a choice. There's a choice of lens. And um, like... We, we underestimate our human vision and the fact that we, and I'm standing here looking and I can see everybody. So I'm looking with the field of view like a wide angle lens. Um, and then I have the capability to then move and focus on one person and nobody else exists. Um, one of the, th- the things you hear when people are learning photography is the bigger challenge is which lens? Which lens do I choose that's going to do what I want? There's a phrase that's quite common of, the picture just doesn't do it justice. And that's because we fail to understand the lens that we're, that we're seeing or, or what was attractive about a particular scene. Um, you know, was it the wide view? Was it the very selective view? We, we often misjudge that. So um, I quickly generated some images yesterday afternoon to highlight um, some examples. And I'm going to start with uh, what's known as a telephoto view. Telephoto view is something that's it's very selectively focused. So our subject is the majestic barn owl. <coughs> and as you can see, um, that is all you can see. Um, if you actually break it down and look really close, you can, there, very little of him is actually in focus. There's only a very tiny wedge measured in millimeters that's actually sharply in focus. 
And this isn't the fact that we can we can't see our eyes can't quite see like this, but it feels emotionally that we can, um, in good and bad ways. So imagine that owl is a problem, a a loss, tr something tragic. Um, I even look at that as saying, I could make the choice and say, hey, we're, it feels like we just got back. We're leaving in less than nine weeks. Uh, we have, you know, we have a place to stay. That's about the only for sure thing that we have. I could be so focused on that that I missed the, the uh, bigger perspective. And instead, there's a choice to say, I look at that owl, and that owl represents faith. That is a, a grounded sense of faith that that is what I'm, I'm fixing my eyes to. And as I do that, hit the next slide for me, Curtis. My focus is still there, but now I have the capability to actually gain some perspective. So now you can kind of see what, where blobs in the background are starting to come into focus. Um, you know, comparing that to our circumstances right now, we have some, you know, some major things like, you know, we've, we've signed a lease and we have a place to rent, you know, but funding is still a huge, a huge challenge. So the blue pillow is, you know, our funding model and how we're actually going to pay for what we're supposed to and what we're being called to do. Um, we've got homeschooling. We've got all of these different challenges. We have to rent our house. Um, imagine if I was focused on those, I wouldn't see why we were doing this in the first place. Um, hit the next slide for me, Curtis. This field of view represents what our eye normally sees. So despite the fact that I can stand here and kind of widen my view and see everybody, normally I would see kind of this middle wedge. And you can kind of start to see the context of where this owl is, is sitting. It's obviously in a living room of some sort. Hint, it's mine. Um, <laughs> now, I still have a very shallow view. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grounded on this item, um, but I have perspective. And then as, as I expand that, now everything is really starting to snap into view. From where we're at, we've, when we first started Journey, this journey and feeling like we were called to, to be in this transitional space between two worlds. Um, that was all that we could see. And then as we, as we leaned into that and, and followed, the details started to come into view. Um, if I'm super honest about how we feel emotionally, I'm back on the other slide. Um, intellectually, faith-based, the, the first slide on your left is about how I feel we, we're, we're choosing to be. Those are details in the back. I can't see them well enough. They haven't been answered yet, but I know that they will. I believe that they will. I have faith that they will be. And by the time we leave, I'm hoping that we look something more like the one on the right. Um, now, the other unique thing about our eyes and about photography is that we have the ability to capture even more information. So if you hit the next slide, Curtis, we start to head into the world of what's known as the wide-angle lens. Now, similar camera settings, you will notice that even though my, my focus is on the owl, the room is essentially in focus. You can see most of those details. You can't read the titles of the books or whatnot, but you have a really good sense of what that picture is. And then as, go ahead, Curtis. As we develop more depth, um, now you could zoom in, you could actually read, start to read book titles. And so the, this question of perspective, I could live my life only focus on one task at hand or only focus on the thing that had my attention or the, or the thing that I was afraid of, and I would miss everything. And it would be very easy to be disoriented. 
um, in this view here, this is, this is where I want to be. Uh, I want to have my eyes fixed on, on who I am, who I am as a child of God and what my calling is, and, and yet be able to see the bigger picture, what, what I'm involved in, um, how I interact, or, or, or my role, um, not only in the mission in Mexico, but my role here, my role of you know, putting myself in places uh, that I don't necessarily want to be, but I understand that, that it's important to be here. Um, now, for, for, uh, for the sake of, of trying to understand past our perspective, and uh, uh, I shot some more shots even wider, so hit the next one, Curtis. Um, you'll, you'll notice that as we get wider, one of the traits of a wide-angle lens is that basically everything is almost always in focus. Uh, there's a shot of a, a landscape photographer that I love that he's got this shot of a, of a poppy. He's in the Himalayas, and it's 18 inches from the front of his lens, and this huge mountain is also in the focus in the background. So everything from here to 20 miles away is in focus. I would challenge and say that I, you know, God has a perspective that is even greater than that. So keep, just keep cycling through. And then hit the next ones here. These shots were so wide that I had to clone my foot out because I didn't notice that I had shot it. Um, so the one, on the, the one on the left is the lens wide open. It's, it's as shallow as it could possibly be, and you can still see everything. Um, I believe God has a wider angle lens than this, and, uh, and he sees everything. And our, our, challenge, our challenge as individuals is, is to move past being selectively focused and understand our, our place in the bigger thing. Um, that said, there's something powerful to be said to be able to zoom back. So our, um, our Friday morning men's group, we meet, and we decided to go through the Lord's Prayer for the next two months. And just every, every Friday, that's what we're leaning into. And, and as I was doing this, the, the picture that came to my head was, you, you go through the first, the first um, phrases, our Father who, out, who art in heaven. And if this is what life feels like when you're sitting here, I want to be able to zoom in back to the very first shot and say, okay, our Father who art in heaven, that is all that I see, right? Um, and so that it, these are really good illustrations to show the, the range that we have and the fact that we, you have to believe that we have the range. You, you have to, we have to believe that there is a plan and this makes sense because we, you know, like I said, we feel like we're way back on the other images. I can't see any of that detail. But I believe it's there, and I trust that it's there. Yeah. That's a great picture of faith. And so I want to uh, challenge you guys, as um, God brings Daryl and Jody and their family to mind, to lift them up in prayer and ask them how you can support them in this journey that they're on. So thanks, Daryl. Appreciate that. It's kind of a good definition of faith, isn't it? The deep-seated conviction that a wide-angle view does exist and is ultimately true, even though I might be completely fixated on what's in front of me right now. I think about this uh, perspective for Howard and Kara. The lens on their work is a wide-angle lens. It's going to take years, decades, to accomplish what it is that God is doing in that part of the world. But when you step back and you say, what's our ultimate purpose? What's our ultimate hope and joy when we stand before Jesus? It's those in Central Asia who'd come to saving faith as a result of their work and faithful commitments. And so this shifts our life and our expectations. 
Because friends, as Christians, we are called to live with a different perspective. We're called to live with a deep love for each other. We're called to live, Paul says, with a growing love for those who don't know God. And if that describes you here today, then today might be the day when you say yes to Jesus and you say, you know what, I need that shift in my perspective on my life. And I invite you to come and talk to me before you leave here today. We're called to have an increasing commitment to holy living, to stand firm in places where we are weak, expecting that the enemy of our souls will try to attack and take necessary measures of strength to reinforce each other in the journey. So whatever comes, you can stand firm. New Testament scholar G.K. Beale looks at this text and says, the question is not whether or not we will face trials, but whether or not we will be faithful in confronting trials. And my prayer for you today, my prayer for me, is that we would be found faithful in the call that Jesus has for us to take all of eternity into perspective and that our circumstances into view. Let's pray together, and the team are going to come and lead us in one closing song. Father, we're grateful uh, for the way in which you work. We're grateful for the way in which uh, you can shift and shape and change and mold our perspective. Uh, You can move us to places where we acknowledge our dependence on you. And so, Father, we want to choose to do that. We want to choose to allow you, just like a master photographer, to actually switch the lens. And so, Holy Spirit, we give you permission to do that in our lives. Circumstances and situations that we're facing now or that we have faced, we ask that you would be the one who gives us strength to look at that through your perspective. We ask, Jesus, that you would strengthen us. We ask that you would be the one who speaks peace to us. We ask that you would be the one uh, who equips us for everything that we need. And so we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who makes it possible. And we say amen. I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me as the team uh, leads us in this song. This song is a declaration of dependence, of saying, God, I know that I need you. I know that I can't do this on my own, and I want your help and your strength as we walk this forward together.